Global Capital Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. I'm Ralph Sinclair and I'm the London Bureau Chief at Global Capital. And I'm John Hay, uh, Corporate Markets and Sustainability Editor. This week we'll be looking into a plea by various trade associations, including some from the capital markets, for the European Commission to stop imposing so many rules. We'll be joined by our People and Markets reporter, Gaia Fredefont, who will be talking to us about why it is said that incoherent regulations are killing any chance of a capital markets union. And we'll also be talking to Aidan Gregory, our equities editor, about the prospects for the Middle Eastern equity capital market this year, which, as you may remember, has been one of the most exciting parts of ECM for several years. And, and Aidan thinks it could be again this year. Uh, but first, we'll be talking about Barclays, uh, which has recently unveiled a new strategy for its investment bank after years of perceived underperformance, uh, which included uh, a few years ago, uh, one activist investor campaign to try and break the thing up. Um, that's a story by our Southpaw columnist, David Rothney. Um, he writes this week that the bank is going to be split into five new divisions. Uh, there'll be Barclays UK, which is the retail bank and the uh, Barclay Card UK business. There'll be a private bank and wealth management division, a US consumer bank. And then the, the critical part for us is the breakup of the corporate and investment bank into an investment bank and a corporate bank. Um, what's, what's going on there, John? What are they, what are they trying to achieve? It's interesting. Yeah, um, this is all uh, under the auspices of C.S. Venkatakrishnan, who's the CEO of Barclays and gave an investor presentation this week where he laid out the new strategy. The background is, of course, that Barclays, like any investment bank in the UK, faces a constant barrage of criticism and, and sort of objections that the conservative shareholders just constantly want them to slim down the investment bank or spin it off. Edward Bramson, an, an activist investor in 2018, launched a campaign to split up Barclays and get them to, um, you know, basically get rid of the investment bank and, and sort of just increase returns to shareholders. The, the, the paradoxical thing is in, in the modern world that you can't run a sort of really big, uh, super profitable investment uh, bank without an investment bank. But on the other hand, its return on equity tends to be rather lower than you know parts of retail banking and um you know so you you do constantly get shareholders saying sort of oh, what about this investment bank you know 10 percent return on equity you know put more of your capital into into retail or cards and get 15 or 16 percent so that is what uh venkat as he's known is is dealing with at the moment yeah the plan is for the investment bank to generate about 1.1 billion pounds uh more from its global markets business that's back to 2019 levels and 700 million quid a year more from its investment bank um but it wants to do this without growing its risk-weighted assets which you can roughly say is the capital that the bank has to deploy to make that money in the first place beyond the 197 billion quid it is at the moment um and the plan overall is to sort of shrink the investment bank's risk-weighted assets as a proportion of the whole uh, as those assets in the other part of the bank grow uh, and they want to sh decrease the share of the investment bank uh, in terms of risk-weighted assets down from 58% to 50%. Uh, so, you know, it's a classic, um, let's do more with less, which usually, uh, 
you know, is something, a message delivered with great enthusiasm by management and um, absolute dread by staff. Um, what have they done already, John, to try and bring this about? Yeah, so I think I think the first thing to say is that, you know, Venkat um, has definitely decided not to marginalise the investment bank or get rid of it. And, and that's very important. He's arguably even being a bit more confident about it than Jez Staley, um, the, the former American CEO who... Um, in 2016, under a considerable pressure of similar kind, um, sort of refocused Barclays very much under the, under the sort of that it would be a kind of UK based bank with a second home in America. Those are, of course, the strongest uh, footholds for Barclays. But uh, this time the emphasis is, is broader. And Venkat is saying, you know, we, we're going to keep um, a, a, a strong foothold in in Europe and in Asia Pacific as well. So I think most people in the investment bank f- f- will be pleased um, that w- with, with that so far. Now, <clears throat> what's he going to do to, to achieve what, what appears to be, as David Rothney put it, a conjuring trick of making more money with the same amount of assets? Um, there is a plan, and this is basically more cross-selling. And this is why the um, uh, reorganisation of the investment bank has taken place. What they've done is take out the UK corporate bank, which serves sort of medium sized um, companies in the UK um, out of the CIB, Corporate and Investment Bank, into into a new division. And the the um, conversely, the investment bank that is one of now one of the five divisions will have integrated within it something called an international corporate bank. Now, the idea here is that the new investment bank is focusing very much on large companies and obviously other clients like banks and governments. But but the the purpose is to provide the full range of services to these companies through the same division. Yeah, so there's some interesting stats in the story, um, which I think really shows what Barclays is trying to do, because it obviously feels that it underserves or put it another way, doesn't wring enough money out of its clients um, in some parts of the products it sells versus, you know, how it serves other groups of clients. Now, what it says is that only, or rather what uh, David Rothney uncovered, was that only 30 to 35% of its Europe, European and US investment banking clients, so big international companies, use its corporate banking products. These are things like treasury services, transaction banking, and and so on. Uh for UK companies, that's 92%. So they obviously feel they have an awful lot of ground to make up there, given they have a fully-fledged US investment bank, for example. Yeah, there's there's considerable upside, basically, in making more money out of the same clients. And that is why they think they can do what, what initially looks like squaring the circle, which is to keep risk-weighted assets in the investment bank level, um, but yet make more revenue. And um, there's a second part to it, um, so that, that that first part being basically serving them with with sort of serving investment banking clients with sort of more humdrum banking products. The second part is they also want to do more on the the very high margin parts of investment banking, which are uh, mergers and acquisitions and equity capital markets. Now, um, it's actually not very often that you hear a bank CEO from Europe saying, you know, we want to do more more of those things. And that that, that is absolute music to the ears of investment bankers. Um, and in fact, there there is, you know, this work has already begun last year. 
So this is a strategy that is not exactly, um, you know, uh, tearing up the rule book, is it? It's uh, sort of a similar, though rather there are similarities to what uh, Deutsche Bank, banks like Deutsche Bank and, and UBS have done too, um, in that they, you know, focusing on the capital light part of the business. Um, I guess the difference is, I suppose, that um, UBS, when it sort of went through this whole uh, change many years ago, shut down parts of its investment bank, but actually... Barclays, its sort of global markets division is 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 fine and performing well. So really, they're just looking to sort of bring the other bits of it up to speed by, uh, I guess, making different groups of people sit closer together and work more closely together. Yeah, he put in place a new management team for investment banking last year, and they're trying to make up ground and fill in some of the gaps where Barclays has underperformed a bit. It really uh, is interesting actually looking at this to see that the Barclays Investment Bank is, is pretty impressive in many ways. Um, and in things like fixed income and, uh, you, you know, even in the leveraged part of uh, debt capital markets, it's, it's well up there with the, with the leading American banks, you know, usually just behind the, the, the very top uh, American ones. Um, but, but, you know, ahead of a lot of other European firms. Um, where it's further behind is in equity capital markets and M&A, where its market share is, you know, more like half what they have. And um, as a result, investment banking revenues have actually fallen as a percentage of risk weighted assets um, from 5.4 percent four years ago to 4.6 percent. And that's really what, what they're trying to do is get that sort of uh, juice that up so that that ratio goes up again. Um, and in fact, they've already, you know, been tackling it by hiring people. There's, I think Barclays has hired 32 managing directors in investment banking over the past year. Some of them were replacing people who'd left, but, you know, there's a net gain. All right. Well, we look very much to forward to seeing uh, David Rothney's coverage of that developing situation and um, in a revival in Barclays fortunes, perhaps. Meanwhile, we spoke to Aidan Gregory about Middle East equity capital markets and Guy Fredefont about a bonfire, perhaps, of European regulation. Hello, Guy. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Ralph. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Um, I was very interested in a story you wrote this week uh, where, you know, we often write about regulation um, and specific bits of regulation, but uh, you've put the whole system on trial, which I thought was particularly exciting. Um, the, uh, you know, on the, I think the if, if we can sum it up, there's this sort of dichotomy in Europe uh, where on the one hand, they desire things like capital markets union, a single market and uh, all these other things to make the place one big sort of frictionless trading block. And yet they can't help but keep imposing rules and regulations. Um, you've written a story this week, or two stories actually, about a bunch of trade associations who have got together because they're, they're absolutely sick of it. Um, tell us a bit about what they're who they are and what they're saying. Yes. So last week, 25 European associations trade associations, companies, all signed what they call the Single Market Obstacles Compendium, which was essentially a huge list that compiles by the European Roundtable for Industry um, that lays out the barriers that need breaking down to finally achieve a single market. And the topics mentioned span far and wide. They touch on what seems like every corner of the market. But ultimately, the theme of the compendium is to do a widespread stop and think 
about the current re regulatory landscape in the EU um, to tilt away from what seems to be the current approach of just more regulation and towards a more reflective approach to think about first, what did we design our current rules to do? And second, is it doing that effectively? So the compendium calls for that exercise across the range of sectors, sustainable finance, regulation, securitization regulation, the banking union, the list goes on. But ultimately what the compendium is saying is that that work, is that doing that work and taking stock in that way should be the commission's first priority. Uh, just tell us a little bit about this compendium first. I mean, it sounds like the perfect gift for the lawyer in your life. Um, but is it, <laughs> uh, is, it, is it as big a tome as... Uh, the, the sort of regulations that these these associations are reigning against give us a size of how much stuff uh, these trade associations have cobbled together. It's a list of over a hundred different problems and barriers to the single market, and issues that are raised from either trade associations or organisations in specific sectors that raise issues um, of fragmentation across their own markets, um, and they raise you know again hundreds of regulatory blocks um, or, or incoherences that are causing a complicated landscape. Yeah, rife with and incoherence just, was the, the phrase in your story, which was... Uh, yes, yeah. yeah. And it's not just finance, is it, Guy? I mean, this goes... You know, the, the associations signing up to this cover things like chemicals, car industry, and so on. So um, the, the, they seem to be worried aren't they, that, that the EU is going in the wrong direction? One of the biggest themes as well was that the, the thought that the EU at the moment is doing just more regulation and is over-regulating. And one of the purposes of the compendium was to shift away or, or to rebalance away from more regulation and towards this more stop-and-think approach. And one of the big themes of the compendium was to push for renewed and genuine political commitment to the CMU and to the single market, which which arguably has been neglected, um, as it kind of should have been, because the European policymakers had bigger fish to fry. They, we were kind of living in what's sometimes called a polycrisis world. So, so the attention, rightly so, has been on, hasn't been on capital market harmonisation. It's been on, among others, COVID-19 and the war in Ukraine. But what the compendium argues for is to kind of push the CMU and single market back up the list of, of priority. So they're worried, aren't they, that the EU is basically falling behind particularly the US and China, um, by, and, and that regulations become very sort of worried and, and focused on the negative and defensive and, and all about sort of how do we avoid shocks and dangers instead of what they want, which is how to create growth and opportunity. And, and I think particularly people are aware of the fact that, that Europe and Europe is, is by being fragmented, is a smaller economic block than the US or China, which are unified markets. And, and that in itself just creates a, a much bigger platform for their companies to grow and innovate. Yeah, exactly. It's it's one of the main goals of the CMU um, is, you know, it's Europe's bid to establish integration in the capital markets, which means to effectively consolidate, as you were saying, each of, at the moment, 27 fragmented markets into a single block of ecosystem. And the ultimate goal there is to attract capital internationally and to become, again, globally competitive and to end up with this very deep and very liquid pool of capital. Um, but again, as the years go on, it, it's yet to happen. And it feels like every year that progress is tracked, we continue to see disappointing progress and sometimes what looks to be no progress at all. Um, so it is turning out to be a very long term project. I mean, part of this is a problem of um, one of a sort of sprawling bureaucracy 
at the heart of the EU anyway, perhaps, and also just the way it sort of makes rules. But there's also um, a, a broader problem in the sense that these these EU regulations then have to be sort of translated into 27 different national equivalents. Um, did, the, did the compendium address that at all? There was a, an interesting issue um, that was spoken about this week from one of my contacts that she was saying there's almost an inherent challenge to integrating Europe, which is that every piece of regulation has to be translated into different European languages. And that creates almost an inherent um, ambiguity issue where different languages might interpret different pieces of regulation in different ways. And they either make the regulation more precise or, or not. And there's almost this inherent problem with with the idea of, of capital market integration because of that. So the Capital Markets Union is this uh, EU plan, isn't it, that's about 10 years old to, to create... Um, a sort of fully unified capital market in Europe. And it, it is always a bit of a sort of nebulous and confusing concept, I think. And and the way it's described sounds like some sort of big and grand thing that can be inaugurated with a big bang on, on a Monday morning. But uh, but actually, it's not like that, is it? It's 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 it about sort of gradually removing barriers and, and sort of disharmonies. It's worth pointing out, of course, that it, in especially in terms of the capital markets we write about, they are already, in fact, very unified. You know, if, if a, co- a company in Romania or Portugal issues a bond, typically in euros, th- that's the national currency of umpteen countries in Europe. And, and it's bought by investors right across the union in a, in a pretty seamless and quick process. So it, it would be wrong to suggest that the capital markets are sort of gravely fragmented. And I think a lot of people in, in, in our markets find it sort of, a, a bit bored of the topic of capital markets union because they sort of think well you know it's it's actually working fine but but there is more to it isn't there and what what do you think are sort of some of the things that that um you know still need to be improved um so the market for investment funds is still not completely unified um the regulation that governs funds is eu wide but it's still not completely unified across all the member states um, another kind of example of this is insolvency law, which is a very deep-seated. Um, it's very d- deep-seated in member state law, and it's a very core part of the law of member states, and it's very historic in that sense. And so, that's one of the most fragmented parts of 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 European regulation that is yet to kind of be harmonised. The equities market is also a big topic here because there's been a growing trend of companies either moving away from Europe in favor of the US market for IPOs, um, because the European market is increasingly seen as kind of a very shallow market, while the US is a very deep and liquid pool of capital. Um, and it's 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 a symptom of, of the capital markets not being unified, again, um, is, is a weak IPO market. And you can blame some of these problems on, um, you know, national, basically fragmentation and national traditions that still persist. And a lot of, the, you know, the ones we've just been talking about are really in that category. But you've also looked this week at problems where fragmentation or, or sort of confusion appear to be being created by the EU itself. Exactly. So one of the examples of that is with sustainable finance regulation, which actually isn't super fragmented across the block because it's so recent that it was developed at EU level. Um, and so the problems with it aren't to do with 
member state fragmentation as much as it is to do with challenges within the framework itself. And can you give us an example of what they mean? Sure. One of the most kind of talked about examples, one of the most recent ones, is there is a kind of a, a usability challenge that has popped up. Um, so there's a usability challenge with the EU taxonomy, where it's becoming difficult to demonstrate alignment with the taxonomy, which will then put off the usability of the EU green bond standard, because in order to be eligible to use that, you have to demonstrate that the proceeds of the bond will be aligned with the taxonomy. So the usability of the, of the taxonomy kind of underpins how usable things like the EU GBS are, how much uptake for that there will be. So in that way, the taxonomy and the GBS feed into one another, but they aren't at all aligned. And that's an example of where the EU framework, although it is an EU-wide framework that spans across Europe, is incoherent. And have the European Commission responded to this so far? I think the European Commission has acknowledged that incoherence to, to, to some extent, and they've acknowledged that there is a need for a widespread kind of stop and rethink when it comes to sustainable finance regulation, um, because that's one of many examples. Um, another example, or, or one of the most problematic issues with the current framework is that given the order of how things were developed, they've ended up with almost an inherent sequencing issue. What the Commission has done is it introduced reporting requirements for the financial sector under SFDR, which is the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, and the EU taxonomy, before they introduced CSRD, which is a Corporate Sustainable Reporting Directive. That's created a fundamental sequencing incoherence, as one contact put it this week, because banks are having to base decisions on data, which at the moment isn't publicly available from the parties that they need it from, to then fulfill their own duties. So they'll have to fill out reporting requirements based on currently non-existent, or at least data that isn't it isn't existent to them. Um, so it's, it's a timing issue that then caused fundamental data issue too. And from what I understand, the Commission has acknowledged that issue as well. And it seems understood that the issue will be addressed over time as, as the CSRD is phased in. But it's an interesting example of the regulation within the framework not lining up. And one regulation kind of depends on the other, and that creates a bit of a contradiction as a result. So how long will all of this take to unravel? It kind of depends on what needs changing. Um, so one con- so one contact this week was saying that there are a few things like, like extra guidance and, and a few small changes that can be made at the level of the commission, which means that it wouldn't need to go through an entire legal process or, or entire legislative pro- process. And so those things can be done quite quickly. Um, but the reality is, is that for a widespread kind of rethink and revision um, to make things as effective as they, as they should be, it will take a few years for change to be material. Hello, Aidan. Welcome back to the podcast. Good morning. Uh, Now, Middle East equity capital markets have been a mainstay of activity in the SEMIA region for the last couple of years. Um, Fond listeners of the podcast will, of course, know the reasons why, and anyone who isn't that fond of it should go back and listen to some older episodes to find out. Um, However, it's had a quiet start so far this year, hasn't it? Which is strange because other parts of the capital markets have been going absolutely crackers. Um, Why has it been so quiet in the Middle East for equity deals this year so far? 
Uh, it has been quiet, uh, but it's one of those things where there isn't really necessarily a particular reason for it, and the volumes are pretty similar to where we were during the same period last year, which ended up as being you know, another extremely strong year for ECM issuance in the Middle East. So the, the slow start, uh, you know, while while it's a bit disappointing for, for, all, for all of us, uh, that it, we shouldn't really read too much into it because beneath the surface there is like an immense amount of pitching and deals being lined up for, for later in the year. Oh, well, indeed. I mean, we certainly wouldn't get a journalist on to talk about a story where something where something wasn't happening. Um, tell us a bit about what's coming. It's going to be quite an exciting year ahead, isn't it? Yes, definitely. And it's a continuation of the strong momentum in the region that we've seen over the past two years as the you know the rulers of Saudi Arabia and the UAE and and other other Gulf states too like Oman is is opening up and there's there's rumours that the Qataris may start doing doing more too these governments all want to deepen the liquidity of their local stock markets and attract foreign capital to fund the you know the transition diversification away from oil and it's a trend which you know is only expected to continue no one expects these markets to slow down anytime soon. And over the last couple of years, Middle East has actually been the place, hasn't it, within in the whole EMEA region where there's been, you know, real vigour in equity markets, hasn't there? And and I mean, how much is that, of that is down to the oil price? Um, and I wouldn't, I would, not just in EMEA, not just in EMEA, John, but globally, the Middle East over the past two years has been one of the very, very few places that's actually had like a functioning liquid IPO market with a steady flow of, of large deals and that just hasn't been the case in other regions like Europe and Hong Kong suffered massively from a downturn as as has New, New York. But do you think that the conditions are there for this to be a similar sort of vintage year? I think so I mean from from my understanding of the pipeline it is a big pipeline for this year and the Middle East isn't it isn't just the beneficiary from high oil prices. There are there are very very important other secular trends as well that are supporting issuance in in the region, such as the you know the massive increased weighting now of Saudi Arabia and and the UAE and the MSCI emerging market indices and the fact that China, which is historically you know the major destination for for EM capital. Is suffering a severe slowdown. So, and and obviously Russia also ceased to exist as an investable market. So, all this capital has to find a home, and it's finding a home in in the Middle East. Explain a little bit about that um, index uh, uh, factor. Um, tell us a little bit about how that sort of drives um, issuance activity and, or certainly, investor money into the region. So, in the indes- in the indices. Uh, yeah, in the case of MSCI's kind of global emerging market indices, each each uh, emerging market is assigned a weighting, uh, and these weightings obviously change for quite a long time. Uh, so these these weighting the, these weightings change fairly regularly, and obviously some countries, given the given the size of their markets, have a much bigger weighting than others. So. No, China for China obviously has like a huge weighting in the MSCI EM index, and it's one of the reasons why, you know, it's performed so poorly over the last two years. As China's economy has entered a slowdown, and the country's suffering a like an unresolved property crisis. But Saudi Arabia, for example, was a huge beneficiary from Russia being ejected from the indices because 
it shares many of the same kind of characteristics of Russia's economy in the sense that you know it's massively kind of massively reliant on on the oil price. And if you if you're a fund that if you're a fund that benchmarks if you're an EM equity fund that benchmarks against the index, then you know you broadly have to track the weightings of each different each different country in the in the index so if if one country like saudi arabia's weighting massively increases like over time then it leads to you know a huge amount of inflows into that particular particular equity market but i think it's 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 not just sort of global funds managed in in london or new york that are, that are driving this equity boom is it i mean it's it's really the fundamental driver is domestic right yeah, I mean the irony is that um, despite obviously making all these making efforts to attract foreign capital, uh, you know, like loosening loosening the rules around foreign ownerships of stocks a few years ago, these Gulf states actually don't really need the money. And one of the reasons why these uh, these local equity capital markets are so um, so vibrant is because they are self sufficient, and there's an enormous pool of very very deep pocketed people locally. Who all show up for, you know, these these IPOs, and and you see it in the in the oversubscription on some of these IPOs in Dubai, where you know there's just this absolutely enormous tail of, of demand that comes from from rich locals who all buy the deals, and everybody knows, and there's a culture that it ever, you know, if it if it as one uh, as one dealmaker says this week, if a, if a, if an IPO in in the UAE doesn't trade up more than twenty percent, then it's considered a failure. So tell us a bit about the IPOs that are coming this year, Aidan. So although it has been a slow start, uh, it is starting to get starting to get going. There, there's an IPO in Saudi from a company called Modern Mills, which makes flour, and that's um, that's expected to price next week, and it's it's expected to raise over three hundred million dollars. So that's the first major IPO of the year in Saudi, and then in the UAE, you've got the um, the parking unit of the, the government's the government's parking business. It's the second of two IPOs that were announced last year to come out of the Road and Transport Authority. So this this company basically manages all of the kind of parking, you know, park car parks across Dubai that that are state owned, and that's that's going to launch as soon as as soon as next week. And it's the latest in a series of privatizations by the the, du, the Dubai government. So those are privatizations, and are there more privately owned companies that are due to come? Yes, well, as over time, uh, obviously, all the state-owned assets were the kind of first first issuers in in this huge wave that we've seen. But we are starting to see a growing number of private businesses list as well. So, in terms of the pipeline in in the UAE this year, there's uh, there's there's the supermarket Spinnies, which is which is owned by a family, and that's also expected to go ahead in the first half. And there's also Lulu, which is a, a hypermarket chain, uh, which is also preparing to go public. But of course, the, uh, the the big banner deal of the year to come is is not actually an IPO, is it? But it's a it's a sort of uh, a further further sort of sell down of shares. Um, tell us a bit about that. Yes. Yeah, so I mean, after this massive wave of IPOs that we've had, the next kind of lo- the next logical step in the, the development of these markets is more follow on offerings, and we have started to see it already in Saudi Arabia. So the public investment fund did the first ever kind of fully marketed sell down of shares in on on the Tadawal in December 2021 when they raised 3.2 billion by selling 
shares in Saudi Telecom. And then at the end of 2022, they did another similar deal in, in Tadawal Group, the operator of the Saudi exchange. So there is now a precedent for these kind of secondary sell downs in, in Saudi Arabia. And they've come up with a legal framework for how it works. And then the next kind of big deal, which everyone has been kind of hoping and waiting for, is if and when the public investment fund decides to do a follow on in, in Saudi Aramco. State state oil producer. That was the biggest IPO of all time, wasn't it? When it was when it was first done or thereabouts. Uh, yes, it still has the record for being the biggest IPO in history. And one of the things that's interesting about that deal, I remember at the time, was they set out to make it a classic international uh, sale. So you know to develop the stock market, get lots of international money involved, all the rest of it. Um, in the end, it didn't quite work out that way, did it? Aramco raised uh, nearly $30 billion and it still holds the record for being the biggest IPO in history. And yet, despite the obviously the massive overall deal size, the Saudi state only sold a tiny 5% stake. So even though Aramco is listed, the, the, free, float, the, the free float of the stock is, is minuscule still. At the time, a lot of international funds stayed away from the Aramco IPO because there was a lot of controversy and misgivings about the valuation. Uh, Crown Prince, the Saudi Crown Prince uh, MBS famously said that he wanted $2 trillion for it, which was, at the time, was, was given where oil prices were, were back then. At the time, you know, that was just simply, in the eyes of many international investors, that was just too expensive. But... As a listed company, Aramco has consistently traded above the $2 trillion valuation mark, particularly given the massive rise in the oil price over the past couple of years since the war in Ukraine. And slowly, you know, many international investors have have come round to the stock. And if and when the PIF does decide to, to do a follow-on, it's expected to capture a much more international demand than it did the first time around. Even though, ironically, these uh, Middle Eastern markets can now rely much more heavily on on local cash. Yeah, even though they don't, even though they don't really need the foreign investors to show up, and you can do these deals just purely on the strength of the local the the local buyer base. Okay, so that sounds like the banner deal to look forward to this year. How big is it going to be this time? So the the rumored deal size changes a lot, and it obviously depends on the PIF and how much money they would like to raise but the the figures that have been banded around are from kind of 10 billion to up to 20 billion dollars 